Welcome to Make Work Fun, the podcast exploring the fun side of the creator economy. We're the show all about business with a bit less of the business. I'm Ben Bradbury. Hello, friends. What is going on? Welcome to another episode of Make Work Fun. I'm Ben Bradbury, and I'm joined today by none other than the wolf, you heard that correctly, of franchises. Have you ever wondered how to do it all as a creator, how to have multiple newsletters a week, a weekly podcast, and threads that blow up and go viral? Well, eight or nine months ago, the wolf was almost at zero with his Twitter followers and his newsletter to subscribers. And just through persistent consistency, he has figured out the formula to going viral. On Twitter, he's built a newsletter list of nearly 25,000 people. He's crushing it. And what's cool about it is he's totally humble about how he's doing what he's doing. And in this interview, we talk about some of the struggles he has, why he is not so much thinking about work-life balance, why he's all in on his work at the moment, because he sees that as an investment. But we do talk about what I think is one of his superpowers is being able to write threads on Twitter that get hundreds of thousands of impressions and thousands of followers in your niche. This is a masterclass in thread writing. We get super tactical. We go through a live example with him. And he talks about his own background as well, because before becoming the wolf of franchises, he was working in the world of franchises. And we learn why having operational expertise in your niche is super important. And that might be where you are today. If you want to be a creator or an aspiring creator, then you can go ahead and do that too. And finally, we also talk about systems that make it easy to differentiate yourself. And you can differentiate yourself through consistency, through showing up every day. Now, that might sound daunting. It certainly sounded daunting to me at one time. But the wolf has a couple of really solid practices that he puts in place that means that he can do the work of two or three people in one week and in less time. It's a really valuable interview. If you want to get to know one of the shining lights at Workweek on our creative team, this is going to be a lot of fun. So tune in and let me know what you think. You can reach me on Twitter at Ben Bradbury underscore, or you can just email me ben at workweek.com. I'll talk to you soon. Mr. Wolf, this is the first time I've introduced someone on a podcast who goes by the name of an animal. So this is going to be a very special episode. It's good to have you on the show. Yeah, good to be here and honored to be the first animal on the show. <laughs> well, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, your background and what you create today? Yeah, so I, I create in the realm of the franchise industry. I got my start in this whole world at a franchise in the HVAC industry. So air conditioning, heating, that kind of thing. It just opened my eyes to the power of small business ownership. And from there I transitioned into what's called the franchise development company where uh, we would invest in early stage franchises and help them grow and find franchisees. So that exposed me to the broader ecosystem of franchises as well as other franchise owners. That led me eventually to starting the Twitter account and newsletter. I know that franchising is a pretty big industry. There's thousands and thousands of people that work in it, either on the the back end as you were or franchise owners as well, where there may even be more people. But it takes a different kind of mindset to start documenting those insights. And you've got a newsletter called The Wolf Report. You have a podcast called Franchise Empires. How did you decide to make the change from going behind the scenes with franchising to putting yourself at the center? Really, when I was at the franchise development company and I got the full exposure to the whole industry, I realized two things. One, you can do very well owning franchises. 
it's an underspoken aspect of entrepreneurship that I hadn't seen on Twitter. And I was already on Twitter under, you know, just a normal account, wasn't really contributing much, but just learning from people in different industries. But, you know, being naturally entrepreneurial, once I realized, hey, you can just buy franchises and work your way up the wealth ladder and eventually have a ton of cash flow in your life or, uh, you know, a business that's going to get acquired by private equity. I just thought that should be spoken about. And then the other aspect was being a person selling franchises to others that there's not enough transparency in the industry. So that's a big aspect of my newsletter is to bring forward the financials of franchises because it is public information. It should be at the forefront, but for whatever reason, the industry is stuck in some old ways. Not everyone, you know, I don't want to paint a broad stroke, but as a whole, we can do a lot better. And, and that's my goal is to elevate that. So it seems like there's a lot of obscure information in franchises. And I think there's a few industries where, where this applies. If, if you're listening to this and you're working and you think, man, the data isn't that transparent. Podcasts are another one of those. Like for me working in audio, it's very hard to see how many downloads a show gets. It's hard to see who's listening. It's hard to know how engaged they are. And so I do think there's a real value proposition for creators of transparency, taking the knowledge that you have as an insider and then helping other people who might feel like outsiders feel more like insiders over time with the information that you share. It's a great point because even myself, right, I'm a pretty competitive person. And now that I'm full time creating, right, I want my newsletter subscribers to go up. I want my Twitter followers to go up. I want my podcast downloads to go up. And podcast is an area where I'm like Googling where my show is in the rankings. And I can't really find good statistics on it. With franchising, it's more of like the internet era of the efficiency of information that can occur with websites and all that. It hasn't hit the franchise world yet. Whereas podcasts, I guess, is, is a little newer, right? It hasn't really been around since like 2008. So maybe that's an issue there. But I agree with you. I've, I've noticed the uh, it's hard for me to, to track my show. That's definitely the hardest content asset to track. And you touched on something there of how your the experience that you had early on helped you develop this lens as a creator of realizing there's a need for this information. I'm curious if any of your other early roles that you had, early experiences before becoming a creator, if they've had a really significant impact on your perspective as well, now that you are a creator. And if so, what do those kind of experiences look like? The job I had before joining Workweek and going full-time as a creator. It was a job that involved, A, scouting emerging franchise brands that we would potentially partner with, and B, uh, speak with multi-unit franchise owners. Because it's a very common thing where if you own one franchise brand, you eventually want to buy another brand and add to your business portfolio, so to speak. And so just getting that understanding of, uh, of seeing this repetitive pattern that if you buy a brand early and secure a large territory and then build those locations, you're going to be successful as long as the brand right does well. But uh, it's a numbers game in franchising. You're never going to get rich owning one. And so that was like the message I felt like I needed to share. And uh, I drew some inspiration from other creators who, who were gaining a following on Twitter for speaking of what I I say falls under the unsexy business umbrella, which Cody Sanchez does a great job of it. Nick Uber, otherwise known as Sweaty Startup. He's more into commercial real estate now, but uh, started out talking about service businesses. And so I thought, hey, franchises should get a seat at the table. Yeah. And what's cool about what you've shared there is that there's clearly this real opportunity to become a voice of authority 
in your space. I feel like there's a lot of these industries that we work in where we spend a lot of time and, and take it for granted. But actually, there aren't that many people who are who are talking. I remember when I was deep into LinkedIn a few years ago, the ratio of lurkers to users is less than 1%. So even just by putting content out there, even that just by publishing your first tweet or first newsletter, you're becoming a beacon of signal in an industry or an area where there typically any, isn't anyone talking. The other thing I think which is really interesting about what you have done there with your experience is that the multi-unit franchise owner is actually the aspirational person for a lot of your audience now. And so what you've effectively done is realized that the people who I was speaking to for my nine to five a few years ago, those are the the people or they represent the kind of lifestyle that my audience wants. And so what's great is you can take all these insights and be really relatable for the everyday business owner and say, hey, this franchise owner has built up a portfolio of 10, 20 franchises. They're delivering X in revenue. And you can do that too, because I've seen the journey from the bottom and can get you there. So it's not just, here's this inaccessible ideal. You're actually taking people through the journey to get to that lifestyle that they deserve. Yeah, well, 100%. And yeah, I mean, I think having operational experience in your niche is super important, right? You know, it's not like I just came out of college and was like, oh, I really am interested in franchises. Let me start tweeting about it. And I do think some people make that mistake when it comes to creating sometimes where they're trying to be maybe like a wealth guru. But it's like the reality is if you don't have experience in wealth management or or, or some form of something that you can draw on, like, you know, experience you can draw on, it's just harder and sometimes people think you come across as inauthentic. So the fact that I have the real world experience drives a lot of the content and even the confidence, especially in the early days. But you also said something about LinkedIn, which I completely agree with. And I didn't I didn't really realize it until I was at work week and it was a big unlock is that consistency in content creation is actually a differentiator because you're right. Most people aren't creating. But before work week, I always just thought, oh, like the people who have big audiences are funny on Instagram or, you know, maybe they're good looking and that's why, but like that can never be me. Like I can never build an audience anywhere, but I've realized just showing up every day and just putting stuff out there that actually content creation isn't just about being funny or being amazing and writing high quality content. It's consistency makes a huge difference. One of our creators, Daniel Murray said a line on my other show subject matter, which is, you can have B-plus content, but you need A-plus consistency. If you show up every single day, day in, day out, and he's an ex-athlete, Daniel's got that mentality, he just posts, and he posts relentlessly. And you kind of do the same thing with Twitter as well. How do you think about keeping yourself or making it as easy as possible to be consistent? Because I think a lot of people, a lot of creators who are listening, they say, okay, Wolf, that sounds great, but... I have a nine to five. I have all these other responsibilities. Posting something every day, that's a grind. So how do you think about making this daily consistency as low of a lift as possible? You got to build the infrastructure. If you have a nine to five, it is different than being a full-time creator like I am, where I have more time to come up with tweets and, and things like that. But I've done both, right? You know, I, I was had a nine to five for three months while Adam and Becca were recruiting me, and eventually I, I joined Workweek. But 
there's an element where the nine to five is easier as long as you're tweeting about what your what your job is and it's in the same vertical because your job, at least for me, this is my experience, was I was getting fresh content because I'd have, you know, sales calls with multi-unit franchise owners or, you know, we'd be scouting a new brand and I would discover them and I, then I could, you know, maybe tweet about them and that would just fuel new content ideas. So you can use that. But as far as making it as low a lift as possible, you need some infrastructure. And by that, I mean like using Notion or maybe even Google Docs if you want to start out more simple to have your sort of whiteboard of ideas for content and what you want to tweet, whether it's individual tweets, uh, tweet threads. And then as you grow, and maybe if you have a newsletter, right, repurposing content is huge. So for me, I have a Monday morning newsletter. As soon as it's sent out, I then go read through that newsletter, pull out the nuggets that I think would make for good tweets. And you should have tweets in there because if you don't have something tweet worthy from your newsletter, you probably didn't write a good newsletter. That's my take. Uh, <laughs> but I'll schedule then right within Twitter, two to five tweets for my newsletter, depending on on what I can fish out. So infrastructure, repurposing, and then I'd even say using technology, whether it's within Twitter itself, the scheduling feature, or something like Typefully or TypeShare that allows you to basically schedule content way in advance and it just makes it easier because you set it forget it and when i have when it's monday and i have tweets scheduled for every day of the week man the mental load is so much lower because i'm like good i'll have some consistency with my content and as things pop out maybe there's news in the franchise world that that'll come out on like a wednesday and yeah fire off more tweets about that as it's relevant but once you know you're good for the week just mentally it gives you more time to then okay what's like a big tweet thread I want to put out or what, what's my next newsletter topic. You have the time because you're not worrying about staying consistent and on top of mind for your audience. So it seems like you use systems to get to that baseline of consistency, which then unlocks the ability to have real creativity. That's a cool way of uh, thinking about it. hundred percent. Yeah. And I mean, I I've been working towards it and it's not perfect yet. The system's not perfect, but that's something that, you know, uh, Brett and I have really been working on within work week is figuring out the balance of it and, and how to be as efficient as possible. Because the more organized you are, just like you said, like it, it unlocks the free time to be creative. I think a big piece of being a creator is understanding what you're inspired by. And I'm curious for you, with this really acute focus on on franchises, what are you inspired by regularly now? So that could be that could be a person, a thinker, that could be a book you read, that could be content you consume. But where does most of your inspiration come from? So you mentioned Daniel, so a former athlete. So am I. So I do, you know, big soccer fan, played through college. I'm typically a fan of the underdog, um, whether it's in sports, in business. I've never, like in soccer, I made it to the Division One level here in the States was never the best player. It was never the fastest or strongest. Always had to work really hard to, to get anything done. And so I just say naturally I gravitated towards underdogs because of that experience. And, you know, from age seven to 21, soccer was my life. That's why I kind of bring that up. But uh, when it comes to, to business, you know, there's a guy I talk about in the franchise industry named Guillermo Perales. And I mean, he... This is an immigrant from Mexico who really had no network in the States. And he now owns like 1,200 franchises. 
that's within my vertical, but like that's a person who has a net worth probably well over a hundred million. And he started from, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not sure on the details of his upbringing in Mexico, but the point is, is like, he wasn't living in America. He didn't go to some Ivy league school. He just bought a golden corral franchise with an SBA loan in 1997. And now he's worth, you know, he he's one of the wealthiest people you can meet. So I just believe in like hard work, hard work and consistency in any niche, in any realm of business and, and entrepreneurial ventures can really uh, just pay dividends down the road. And what I want to underscore about that story for everyone listening is what Wolf's done there is taken his unique experiences, his unique strengths, and use that to his advantage to, to build a model for how he operates. So he spent 14 years playing football or soccer, sorry, wrong country. Um, he spent all that time playing then you can turn that enthusiasm or determination that you've had into his career. And so I question or challenge everyone who's listening to this, think about what past experiences have you had that makes you unique? Because that's what you can not just build your models around for for how you operate, but also it can be content for how you write about. Like I spent eight months as a digital nomad in Bali that's content right there. And that's my experience. And so honing into that, I think, helps you be more and more unique, because that's exactly what audiences flock to, are people who are who believe in themselves absolutely, because they absolutely are themselves. Before I started the Wolf of Franchises account, I was already trying to figure out ways to grow an audience. And it wasn't really from a superficial perspective of like, oh, I just want to, you know, stroke my ego and, and ha- get to say I'm an influencer or anything like that. I just saw this trend. Uh, it started with initially what I saw, uh, David Perel, who he basically tweets about the art of writing online. And he's built like a 300,000 plus following on Twitter. He's got his own writing course that does incredibly well. You know, it's a cohort based course. And yeah, he's a solopreneur, basically, and crushes it. But so I wanted to build an audience because I saw this trend where the people who had audiences were now getting deal flow and investments, were meeting all these amazing, cool people. Because if you have influence, it's just like a magnet for like-minded individuals, even if it's in different niches. And like Packy McCormick thing came up and his newsletter blew up. And all of a sudden now he's raising investment funds. So I just saw this trend and I wanted to do it in franchising. But regarding what you said of uh, your unique, like, advantage and and experience. David Perel has something that he calls your personal monopoly. And it's basically what you just described. It's what is your unique experience, your unique skill sets? What are you actually very interested in? And it's like a triple, it might even be, I might be missing one. Uh, He has it on his website. So check it out if you're interested in this. It's like a quadruple Venn diagram. And what is in the middle of all four of those things? That's what you end up becoming. Uh, writing about. And that's partially what I did for this franchise account, because I realized it's a very unique experience and insight I have professionally. And I felt like I could leverage that into a following. Yeah. So for the benefit of anyone who hasn't heard about this, the exact definition from David is the personal monopoly is a unique intersection of skills, knowledge, and personality that nobody else can compete with. What's cool about this idea actually is David's a creator and this kind of comes back to the idea of creating content for one really targeted person because David got this idea from 
a book called Zero to One written by Peter Thiel, one of the founders of PayPal, the first outside investor in Facebook. So Thiel's a boss. And in, in the book, he talks about how great companies should actually build monopolies and they build monopolies by differentiation and not by competition. So David took this concept, but he also wrote a really thorough article on Peter Thiel called Peter Thiel's Religion, where he goes into why Thiel uses Christianity, the fact that Thiel was actually a student at Stanford under this guy called Rene Girard, and he goes through all of Girard's thesis. But it's one of the most rigorous pieces out there on Thiel, and probably the most rigorous about his religion. And now David has been on podcasts with Peter Thiel, and they're probably friends. And so you can see how just creating content with a really specific audience member in mind can literally unlock relationships with people at the top of their game. It's pretty incredible to see what can happen. And, you know, I, I still consider myself very early into my journey. And even within the industry of the franchise world, like content really at scale just becomes a magnet. You know, people become interested in what you're doing and who's behind it. And so I've had conversations with some of the top CEOs within the what I'd call the franchise industry and even, you know, had uh, DMs with uh, some of the founders of the biggest brands in the franchise world. Like there's this one Crumble Cookies that is going to do a billion dollars in revenue this year. You know, we're DMing on Twitter and he's just saying hi to me because he likes what I'm putting out on Twitter. And so, yeah, it's really cool to see. And I mean, David Perel's on a much different level than me. Uh, maybe one day I can get there. But uh, yeah, for, uh, for now, I think he's a great example of just what can happen. Oh, for sure, mate. Yeah, everyone can get there. And I mean, one of the, the things you definitely share with him is an ability to pop off on Twitter. And this gets into our second segment today, all around how we make work fun, how, how you're having fun with your work. And I can imagine that you spend a lot of time on those tweet threads. If anyone hasn't followed at Franchise Wolf, you absolutely have to. Uh, this guy's stories are mind boggling. But talk to us. How do you think about writing threads that go viral and also convert and help your business? When it comes to threads, and you know, I, I mentioned this a bit earlier, right? I, I was a student on Twitter before I actually was actively creating content, trying to build a following. Uh, you know, I would go to webinars put on again by David Perel. Uh, I remember one I watched from Anthony Pompliano. A lot of different people who were creating on Twitter and already had success. Uh, kind of, there's a lot of good free content from these people on YouTube, and that's the stuff I used eventually to figure it out, or even just studying the threads themselves. Like Trung Fan crushes it with Twitter threads, and kind of trying to read through all of them, find similarities. Like why is this popping versus other threads that I see that get no traction. And what I realized was there's a lot of what I'd call technical things you need to do on Twitter. You know, formatting of the threads is really important. You want white space in between the sentences. So you don't want a big block of text in any tweet in the thread. Um, you know, your intro, the first tweet, the hook, ideally as an image, because that's a scroll stopper. If you have a powerful image in there, and then uh, you want to tee up that hook to drive people to read through the rest of the thread. So there's a lot of technicalities, but the biggest thing for me in threads, and I feel like this isn't talked about enough, is the topic you choose is so critical. If you pick a dull topic or whether, you know, my threads are mostly or stories or stories about businesses within the franchise world. So that's not everyone. So people do tactical threads, you know, like there's someone who d does very well talking about how to basically get better at Microsoft Excel. 
So that's boring, yes, but there's a lot of utility value. And, you know, Excel's like the most used business application in the world. So high total addressable market, high utility value. Me, when I'm writing stories, I need the topic to be interesting. So if I pick a boring story, even if I get everything else right, all the formatting, making sure my CTAs are at the bottom of a thread, drafting as good a hook as you can. If the story's not interesting, that's it. You, there's only your ceiling for uh, traction is so much lower. So my formula now is pick a well-known topic, find a little known story within that topic. And then within that little known story, if you have like a wild journey or some crazy occurrences that happen, boom, like that is the recipe for a viral Twitter thread. And when I find it, like my brain just explodes because I'm like, yes, like I found one. I know this is going to pop off. And I'm happy to give you an example, but that that's kind of my framework. Could you define a topic there? Because what I found interesting is that you start with the topic and then go for the story. Whereas I feel like a lot of people conflate the two of saying, hey, I just need to find something to write about. Let me find a good story and shoot. So maybe how do you think about topics for the, for your industry? When I say topic, I, I mean like... Um, it's being synonymous with the subject of the thread, meaning again, so since I write business stories on the franchise industry, like I'll use an example. So like a recent thread that did well, you know, brought in about 6,000 followers for me uh, was about Burger King. That was the topic. So well-known, I say it's a well-known topic because right, Burger King is a national brand. Majority of people on Twitter, majority of my audience is in North America, but even those outside of North America have heard of Burger King. So boom, well-known topic, check. However, nobody necessarily, not nobody, but just a story about Burger King. Like most people know, okay, it's a franchise. It started, I don't know, a long time ago and now it's big. That's not that interesting on the on the surface. But what if there's a little-known story within the Burger King ecosystem? So when I did some digging, I found out that in Australia, Burger King isn't called Burger King. It's called Hungry Jacks. And I was like, huh, that's kind of weird. What? Yeah. Yeah. Out of it. Yeah. Why is this one <laughs> country in Burger King's, you know, in dozens and dozens of countries across the world? Why does Burger King call it Hungry Jacks? And boom, little known story. I dug into why there was a trademark issue back in the in the 60s. Burger King, the operator who purchased the rights to Australia already paid Burger King. And it was basically like, hey, like you actually can't use the Burger King name here because someone else this random person happened to call their burger chain in Australia, Burger King. So that's it. Like it was a lost opportunity. Burger King had to wait 30 years to get that trademark back. So when I dive deeper into that little known story of why Hungry Jacks exists as Burger King in Australia, there's a very wild journey. It's an Australian franchisee who runs Hungry Jacks, right? He's, he's what's known as the master franchisee. He ends up in a big lawsuit with Burger King because once they got their trademark back, they tried to tell this owner, hey, convert all your Hungry Jacks to Burger King. And he was like, no, like we have brand recognition. It's fine. I don't want to do that. And Burger King ends up building locations without this person's permission. And they're building Burger Kings that are directly competing with his Hungry Jacks. And it's technically the same company. And then they assumed that this operator would take a buyout offer. So Burger King went and built a bunch of competing locations, said, hey, we're going to buy out your existing locations for you know tens of millions of dollars because they had like 300 at this point. But instead, the person just on principle was like, 
this is BS. Like you guys are just trying to take advantage of me. He ends up suing them and he wins. And so when I figured wow. all this out, I'm like, holy shit. Nobody knows about this. It's a crazy story, but I can use Burger King as the hook to draw people in and boom, like and it, it ended up performing very well. Wow, that is nuts. I mean, I'm I'm enjoying that just listening to you. I think it's interesting to think about what's the key variable that dictates a topic in your industry then. So for franchises, because you are talking about building franchises with different companies, it makes sense for it to be different companies that, that form those pillars, well-known companies. We have a climate tech creator, Nick. For him, it might be different kinds of climate technology. So it might be solar, it might be hydro, uh, might be ag tech. But figuring out what those buckets are, I think it sounds like makes it so much easier to then go and create really killer content. It's really like making that first bucket as relatable as like you want that to be have the highest total addressable market and have it be as relatable to as many people as possible. So, I mean, yeah, like with Nick, with climate tech, maybe there's some new company that's trying to fix, you know, the way that our ozone is getting depleted. And you could do some lead-in where like the ozone is relevant to literally everyone because we all live on planet Earth. So I pick business stories as my way to write threads. But again, there's so many different ways that you can write threads. It can be, again, like educational things. Like I mentioned, the Microsoft Excel thread person. So yeah, uh, a lot of different ways, but it's really just you want that first bucket to just be, to be able to cast a really wide net. You mentioned earlier how when all of this clicks, when you realize you've struck the mother load, that's one of the bits that, where, as you put it, your brain explodes because everything comes together. I'm curious, what are the other parts of your job that are the most fun? This might be the bits that light you up. This might be anything at all, but what is the most fun that you have as a creator when you work? The thread writing's been fun. It wasn't in the beginning, right? Because it, it's tough as a creator. I'd say when really starting out, starting out's the hardest. So whether it's a newsletter, whether it's Twitter, whether you're building a following on LinkedIn, whatever you're, whether it's a podcast, right? Especially once you're a quote unquote full-time creator. I had this, honestly, like a kind of a, not rough, but just, I wasn't happy for a few months because basically once it's your profession, I started attaching myself to this number. Um, where it's like, okay, well, I'm now my job is a creator, but I only have 400 Twitter followers and 400 newsletter subscribers. Like that's, you know, I have to tell my friends that this is my new job. And they're like, oh, you're not doing so hot then. So, you know, there's that mental battle you got to get through. But as you get bigger, it gets more fun. Um, so yeah, in addition to the Twitter threads, I mean, I really like writing the deep dives in my newsletter because it's an opportunity for me to really riff on any topic within the franchise world, which again, my experience in that world is key. So I saw what I feel like is wrong with it. And I get to almost test these ideas out of what franchises should do differently, what makes for a good franchise investment. And it's it's real-time feedback you get. You know, people reply to the news that are say, hey, that was awesome, or hey, I totally agree. And you get the same thing on Twitter when you tweet things out. But yeah, I just love that real-time feedback aspect. And I'd also say the podcast for franchise empires, right? Like podcasts are, and this really shocked me. And I think I told you this within like the first few episodes. It's probably the best way to network. Like if I was in any industry, especially B2B, if you just start a podcast, you don't even have to care about uh, how it does. The value of the network that you create pays for all the time you put into it and whatever the cost of, you know, 
you know, $500 worth of podcast equipment that you get. Because it's just such a good way to meet people. And it's an excuse, right? Nobody wants to jump on a 30 minute phone call. But if you say, hey, I have a podcast, you want to be a guest, boom, immediate ego stroke of the guest that who doesn't love talking about themselves and bragging about themselves in a socially acceptable way. And now you have a friend or a colleague or a professional connection that you can hopefully use if you uh, are intelligent about it. Well, I'm fired up that you are getting so much value out of uh, out your podcast. It's great. Anyone who's interested in small business ownership, definitely give it a listen. And also, I appreciate your vulnerability. It's not easy starting out when you have at zero. But I remember I moved to New York like five years ago. And the day I was due to fly, I'm in Gatwick Airport. And I turn around and I think, shit, I recognize that guy. He's a big YouTuber. And it's PewDiePie, who's the biggest YouTuber in the no world. He's sitting there with his girlfriend doing a crossword. And I go up to him and start a conversation. And uh, I say, yo, Pewds, like, tell me a little bit about your YouTube. How, how's it been? How was it when you were starting? And he said, you know, nobody watched my videos for a full year. No one gave a shit yep. for a year. I was just grinding. It was just me posting my videos. And then eventually things started taking off. But everyone goes through that rite of passage of yes. having a having a zero and it it doesn't feel great but no, every single big creator has been there and it's a necessary part of uh, of making it so i appreciate you sharing that it is a rite of passage and i just think it gets lost on a lot of people who are trying to create and one that really gets me and we'll stick with youtubers since you mentioned pewdiepie mr beast has become big topic for content creators because of his success on YouTube. And a lot of the things I see on Twitter, it's, they're kind of use. I mean, it goes back to my formula, right? Pick a topic that is highly relatable to a lot of people. Well, a lot of people know who Mr. Beast is. So now a lot of people are writing about him and saying, here's his three hacks for content creation to go viral and all these different things. But I, those ones actually really bother me because the story of Mr. Beast isn't about how to go viral. And like, yes, every one of his video now goes viral because he has millions and millions of subscribers. But what no one talks about enough is Mr. Beast YouTubed for three years from 13 to 16, and he only had 2,000 YouTube subscribers. Imagine doing that for three years, doing like a however many videos a week. Crazy. And he only had 2,000. That doesn't pay you a cent, people, if you're not familiar with YouTube. And now he's 23, so that's been seven years since he was 16. And he's got 95 million subscribers on his main channel and tens of millions on his other channels. So Mr. Beast is a story of consistency because just like PewDiePie, for a long time, nobody gave a shit or knew who he was, but he stayed at it. And like, I have to ask myself, would I have stuck at Twitter if it took me three years to pop off? I don't know. Like it took me nine months to, to have my first like kind of inflection point moment. But I just think it's incredible when when you really dive into like, the early days and see how long it took for them to grow. Cause that's what separates the successful from the not successful. That's a great point. I think there's so much truth in so many industries where the winners are not the smartest people. They're not the fastest. They are just the most persistent. They just outlasted everyone else. Could everyone else got bored? They moved on to the next shiny thing. But in Mr. Beast's case, he was that he's that kind of three year overnight success as a YouTuber. He is so vulnerable and just honest and humble. He really believes anyone can make it in content creation and he uses it himself as an example. If anyone hasn't seen Mr. Beast, what he looks like, just go look him up. But 
he says it. He's like, hey, like, I'm not good looking. I'm not a good looking guy. And he's even, you can even tell he's a little awkward. He's a little shy. He's a little socially awkward. And he's like, imagine that uh, average at best looking male who's socially awkward is the world's biggest YouTuber. I mean, if that doesn't <laughs> tell you the power of persistence, then like, I, I don't know what can, especially in this day and age with, you know, Instagram superficiality and everything. But but that's why I respect the hell out of Mr. Beast because he's just so honest and so hardworking. And I mean, he deserves all the success he has. Love that. And then imagine if you're a full-blown wolf like you, what you can actually do. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, Crazy, we'll see. eh? Stick out yeah. like a sore thumb. Um, one thing I'm, I'm curious about as well is I've gotten to know you fairly well over the last few months and you have a pretty incredible work ethic. It's one of the reasons I respect you a bunch. In order to do that, though, you've got to be sustainable and be in that for the long term. And we talk about work-life balance here on the show because it's such an important thing for creators to have that. What does that look like for you? And, and how do you think about it as someone who is really all in on their work? How do you make sure that you've got a life outside of that as well? That's a very important question, especially for content creators, because the reality is, right, it never stops. Like there's always more you can tweet. It doesn't matter if it's weekend, doesn't matter if it's 9 p.m. or 9 a.m., right? So it's a work in progress for me admittedly it hasn't been in balance as of late meaning like i'm working a lot more and uh i i give up right i, I give up time i give up social time with my friends and for those who don't know because you know i'm anonymous on twitter i am 28 years old i live in manhattan there's a lot of social opportunities that come up as a 28 year old you know i'm not a parent with kids or anything like that and yeah i mean i i, I do work Sometimes on weekends, uh, you know, drafting Twitter threads that are going to go out on Sunday morning because that's my time. And for a while, I felt stupid because, like, I would be drafting Twitter threads on a Saturday night. I wasn't going out to the bar with my friends. And then the Twitter thread flops. And you're like, wow, did I really just waste my weekend for that? But I do have a belief, and a lot of this comes down to what Adam and Becker are doing with Workweek, that, you know, Adam's goal for me, and it's not all capitalistic. It's not all money-driven. He's got a lot of other goals for me and for all our creators, but he knows what I'm driven by. And like, you know, I want to earn a very, very good living for myself. And his goal, he's like, Hey man, like we can do this for you. Like we can take you to accomplish your dreams. And I bought in completely. So my thought is it gets easier as you get a bigger following. It's a lot easier to go from 50 K followers to hundred K or 50 to hundred K than it is zero to 50 K. So I'm out of balance on purpose today because I'm building this foundation that as time goes on will be I won't need to keep putting in these long long hours you still got to be consistent but you know again you don't have to grind your every weekend on Twitter threads when you're already at 100 or 150k or whatever it is because it is easier to do self-sustaining content yeah but that's a trade-off right and I just it's a it's a philosophical belief I have too that like if you want to create something amazing and have like above average income return in life, like you have to work for it. It's not just going to fall into your lap unless you were born rich or totally. like have a connection. But ultimately that that's what I'm working towards. And, you know, I can get into like how I structure my day because I have been working on that a lot recently and that that should help bring more balance in, into my life, uh, especially to prevent burnout. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, I think that'd be a really interesting thing to, to close with. What do you think are the biggest pieces of your routine that you have in place that let you perform sustainably? As a former soccer player, I do try to stay in shape aside from the physical benefits, like working out, running, 
it's really good for your mind as well. Relieve stress, it energizes you. So I've learned that getting that out of the way first is very important because if I leave it for the end of the day, it's tough to make it happen because by 4 or 5 p.m., I feel like I'm crushing it at work and I don't want to break my rhythm. So I, my workouts just get pushed behind. And if you miss a few days, then you start feeling the mental effect of not having worked out. And so keeping a fresh mind is right there with workouts. But then beyond that, I think you got to identify what your, I'd call like your tier one creation platforms, which for me right now, it's Twitter and the newsletter. They go hand in hand. Those are my biggest outputs. And then working backwards from how much output do you want on a weekly basis and what is actually required time-wise to hit those outputs. And I, I'm very like, regimented on it. And if you looked at my calendar, Ben, you'd see it's color-coded. I have certain days. Oh, it's crazy. It's blocked out <laughs> Monday through yeah. Friday. Specific, you know, I have uh, a two-hour session on Monday afternoons to research topics for my newsletter. And that's purely, it's literally Googling ideating on topics. I have a Google Doc or a Notion Doc full of it. Um, then I have a two-hour block to write my newsletter, followed by another hour or so block to finish the newsletter. And I do that for each ones. And then I also have research time for a thread. You know, Tuesday afternoon, I spend two hours researching a thread. And then by Thursday, I start writing it. Then Friday, ideally, I'm finishing it up. So then again, so going forward, I don't have to work on weekends. Right, I don't have to be writing a Twitter thread on a Saturday. I can go out and enjoy my day, give my mind some rest. So yeah, I would say for me, working out's critical. That's a very personal thing. But then also again, like identifying those your tier one creation platforms and then figuring out what is your ideal output and what do you need to do from a research perspective and actually just a deep work writing perspective to get it done. And now that I've done that, and this is literally within the last two to three weeks. You know, I've been, again, working with Brett on that. It is game-changing. And like last week, I didn't have to work Saturday or Sunday because I finished everything during Monday through Friday. And it's a crazy Monday through Friday, but it's starting to work. I love that progress. And goes to show that you can have really serious output across multiple newsletters a week, a podcast a week, tweets every day, and a thread a week if you systematize your day effectively. And uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great piece of advice to end on. Wolf, where can people follow you? This You've dropped many, many knowledge bombs this interview. I'm sure people want to keep up with you. Where's the best places for them to go? Uh, I'd say I'm mean, Twitter. I'm most active at Franchise Wolf. And then uh, we also have wolfoffranchises.com, which has gone recently live. That's the home to everything from the newsletter to the podcast, Franchise Empires, if you want to tune in there and that's available anywhere you listen to podcasts. But I also have some blog articles and I'll be doing more long form writing on that. So if you want to just view everything, go to wolfoffranchises.com. But um, also don't hesitate to follow me on Twitter. Awesome. Wolf, you're a star. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ben. This was fun. Thanks for tuning in. Keep the fun coming by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend? It really helps us spread our message. We'll see you next time. Thank you.